Ephesians chapter number 1. Uh, we're beginning a series and exposition through the book of Ephesians, and I've been uh, the last few weeks uh, preparing for this, studying and um, praying and, and uh, listening to the book, reading the book, and uh, I've been kind of chomping at the bit to preach uh, through this wonderful book of the Bible. And so we're going to begin that this morning. And uh, I was told that I don't preach nearly as long as Brother Harold used to preach. You know what that means, don't you? It means I can preach a little longer. And I, I won't tell you who told me that, because they might be in trouble, for those of you who want to get out a little quicker. Uh, but uh, I've always believed just you preach till you're done with the text, and uh, when the Lord's done, we're done, and then we'll continue on in the next one. Uh, but uh, Ephesians chapter number 1, verse 1 through 2, the title of the message this morning is, To the Saints Who Are in Ephesus. This is largely an introductory message that will cover the first two verses and notice how Paul opens here it says Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as we begin the exposition of the book of Ephesians my prayer is that as we come through this book it will enrich your understanding of the gospel that it will deepen your love for Christ, and that will help you in your Christian living. And just to give maybe some introductory remarks, Ephesians is a rich and deep book of the Bible that makes known to us the mystery of the gospel. If I had to give this study or series a title, I would call it the mystery of the gospel made known. Uh, This letter is, is beloved by many. Some have said it, was the most, it is the most sublime, most profound, most advanced, and final utterance of St. Paul in his gospel to the Gentiles. It's said to have been John Calvin's favorite epistle, and it was treasured by others, such as the Scottish reformer John Knox, who on his deathbed requ- requested that Ephesians be read and uh, the sermons of Calvin be read to him, which if you read his sermons, they are rich. I wouldn't agree with Calvin on everything, but he had a lot of good to say. As you come to this book, it has 155 verses, which will take you about 20 minutes to read out loud. And so it's a book that's, that's easy to read through. And while it's not long in length, it is deep in content. And I, the Word of God is deep and rich to us here today. So this brings us to the question as we introduce this, why preach through this book? Well, firstly, we're called to preach through all of Scripture, so that includes Ephesians, uh, number one. That's pretty simple. But secondly, Ephesians, it brings out many things that are essential to our Christian knowledge and also our Christian living. And to point out a few, Ephesians deepens our understanding of the gospel of Christ. Now, we live in a day of very superficial and shallow Christianity, and it seems like it's almost a token or a badge of pride that I don't know as much as the Bible gives to me to know. Uh, Remaining ignorant of certain truths and maybe ignoring certain truths, which is not how the Christian should be. I believe the Christian should know the depths of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever God has revealed in Scripture must be studied and known, even if there's deeper things than our finite minds can really wrap our minds around. Another reason I think Ephesians is a needed study is because it magnifies the importance of the church, which I think is downplayed in our current culture and even among modern Christendom. Uh, Many downplay the church, not realizing its importance to God and to the people of God. Ephesians gives us practical guidance on Christian living. You see, the Christian life, it encompasses all of your life. 
And so as you come through this book, we see Christian living instruction on this in an individual way. It touches on the Christian's uh, role in their marriage, to their spouse, to their parenting, and their children, to their work life, to spiritual warfare. There's so much here for the Christian that is needed for our present day. It's a great companion letter to Colossians if you read them together. But from beginning to end in this letter, the central thread of this letter that I have found is the mystery of the gospel made known and how this gospel has affected those who know it. Paul speaks of this mystery in the first chapter. He speaks of it again in the third chapter. And then he'll speak of it again in the last chapter. So there's a thread that's woven throughout it, and it's about the gospel and what this gospel has done in the lives of those who have received it. So it is a deep and wide unveiling of the glorious gospel of Christ. And in this opening message... My prayer is that we would get a solid foundation for us as we come into the rest of the book. And to get that foundation, we'll be looking at the first two verses, giving background information, but also looking at how the church in Ephesus came to be. So if you're following along in our notes here this morning, number one, you'll see the introduction to the Ephesians. The introduction to the Ephesians. And I'll point out two things about this introduction. The first one is the author. Who is the author? It's Paul. And what does he call himself here? He is an apostle of Christ. The author is Paul, an apostle of Christ. Now, whenever we dive into a new book of the Bible, we're faced with the responsibility of understanding certain truths about the book. Who wrote the book? To whom was it written? Why was this book written? Perhaps when was this book written? Gives us insight. Now, most of the letters of the New Testament, most of the epistles, they give pretty clear answers to those questions. We find in verse 1, Paul writing this as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right at the start, we know who's penning this. He gives the intro. He, he, titled, he, he, he opens it up with his identification. It is the apostle Paul writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's really no debate as to the author because Paul has claimed authorship. The early church universally accepted this letter as uh, being that of Paul's writing. It's believed that Paul wrote this letter while in prison in Rome. And the timing of this writing has been debated and ranges from 58 A.D. to 62 A.D. So somewhere within that uh, window, the book of Ephesians uh, came to be. But notice how Paul identifies himself in this opening. He calls himself an apostle. He calls himself an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? The word apostle here, if you look at the lexicon definition, speaks of messengers with extraordinary status, especially of God's messengers or an envoy. So an apostle in, in simple terms is someone who is sent. I think we mentioned that in Sunday school this morning. Uh, someone who is sent, it would be categorized as an apostle. But that does not mean that all Christians or all preachers are apostles in the sense that Paul gives here. When you look at the word apostle, it's used in three different senses in the New Testament. The primary sense of a messenger, someone who is sent as a messenger of God, such as John the Baptist. You read in Hebrews 3, Jesus is called our apostle, the one who is sent from God. Uh, so in that title, we see that. 
Then there's a sense of missionaries or sent to proclaim the gospel among the nations. Someone who is sent in that fashion. But in the third sense here is what we look at here. There's a sense as a special office. Personally chosen and commissioned by Christ during that early church era. The apostle Paul. And it's in this sense that Paul gives reference. As he gives later identification of this very office in Ephesians 4 verse 11. Paul, writing in this letter, he tells us about uh, the structure of the church. He says, and he gave some apostles and the prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So you see that this office of apostle was uh, was that early office which was used to truly formulate and see the church growing and gathering, building up. Now, how many apostles of this nature did Jesus choose during his ministry? We all know that answer, right? We have 12 apostles. He chose 12. Besides the original 12 and Matthias, who replaced Judas in Acts 1, Paul was the only other apostle of this nature, of this office. And this office, understand, this apostle office was given to ones chosen by God who were taught by Christ and had witnessed his resurrection. Now understand that that immediately disqualifies present-day apostles. You're going to find some in different denominations that will say, Oh, I'm an apostle. I tend to ask them, Really, when did you see the risen Christ? They don't have an answer. There's a qualification for this office. And so when we look at this, they had to have been taught by Christ and and qualified by having seen the resurrected Christ. Who was it that taught Paul the gospel? Well, he answers that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Notice this in your notes. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was directly taught the gospel from Jesus himself. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, that marvelous, miraculous uh, conversion experience by Paul when he's struck blind to the ground and Jesus asks him, Saul, Saul, why why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting me? Because he was persecuting the church. So Paul's apostleship, it came later than others, but, why, but was by all means true apostleship. And we see this, as Paul says here in this text. Notice verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? By the will of God. By the will of God. You see, Paul did not become an apostle because he had extraordinary credentials or great religious prestige. He became an apostle because it was God's will for him to be an apostle. Because God chose him to be an apostle. He, he reiterates this truth again in Galatians 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You'll find through this letter, that's another theme. The will of God. What is the will of God? What is it that he has ordained? What is it that he has brought to pass? And so with the regard to Paul and his apostleship, it was God's will for him to be an apostle. And it would be through these apostles in that early church era that miraculous gifts and signs of the Spirit would be given to prove the validity of their message, preaching the risen Christ, that he is indeed risen from the dead. Acts chapter 4, verse 33 is just one instance in which we see this reference. With great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. We read how the Lord went along with the apostles, confirming the message of the risen Lord with signs and miracles of the Holy Spirit. So what does Paul's apostleship here do for the letter of Ephesians? Why is this important? Paul's apostleship here, the very first thing he notices, he mentions about himself, reveals the authority of his penning this letter. In other words, what Paul pens here is the divinely inspired word of the living God. It is not just some other letter written by anyone who says this is the word from God. This has the stamp of God upon it. It is the breath of God speaking to his people. As Charles Hodge comments on this epistle and rightly says, the epistle reveals itself as the work of the Holy Ghost as clearly as the stars declare their maker to be God. And I concur. You read through this text and how beautiful and wonderful it is of the glory of God. But notice with me letter B this morning. We see not only the author is Paul, an apostle of Christ, we see the audience is the church who are saints in Christ. Who are saints in Christ. Now notice what he says in verse 1. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus. The saints who are in Ephesus. So there's a specific identification here. Now regarding the audience, there has been small debate of about three positions as to this letter's intent. The first position would be that it's to the church that's in Ephesus. Some have, uh, have mentioned that it was meant for the Laodiceans, which has little to no viable ev evidence. Others believe that this was a circular letter for all the churches of Asia. Now, some propose that this letter was circular because in some early manuscripts, very few, the name Ephesus is not rendered here. And there's no specific reference to people in the church or issues in, in a specific local church like Paul does in other letters. But So what you find is that Paul writes in a very impersonal way compared to some of his other letters uh, that he wrote to churches. But what we find here is that the general approach here of this letter does not negate the fact that the vast majority of manuscripts have in Ephesus here. So I believe that to have the weightier matter. And so the solution to this, I believe, is that this church was written to the Ephesian church. But it is written in a more general way to the broad populace of Gentile believers that shows their union with Christ, that they are one with Christ, Jew and Gentile, and the glory of what God has done in the gospel, which is the major doctrinal point of this letter. So this letter written to the church, the saints in Ephesus. Now notice what he says. Notice how Paul identifies them, and this is significant. He says to them, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be a saint? This is what he calls them, the saints. The saints. We sing that wonderful song when the saints go marching in, right? Who is a saint? Well, the word for saint here is the Greek term hagios, and it refers to one who has been dedicated to God, who is holy and sacred. This word signifies cleansing from guilt by propitiatory sacrifice. So, so by calling Ephesians saints, he's calling them holy ones, cleansed ones, sacred ones. And, and this certainly is who the people of God are in Christ Jesus. You understand, Christian, that this is also your position. You are a saint 
in Christ Jesus if you have truly been born again and know him. We are the saints. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11 tells us, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, there in the Old Testament, the Israelites were called saints because they were called out. They were consecrated unto God as His people. The New Testament uses this word to describe all of those who are in Christ Jesus. All who are believers have been called out of the world and cleansed by Christ, making them a saint before God, a holy one. Now understand that this is by way of position. We don't often practice our sainthood like we should, do we? Our position before God is righteous, holy. And what we are in Christ is supposed to reflect in how we live. For Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, we find another reference. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what do you find there? We're saints in Christ Jesus. We're called out from the world to be saints in Christ Jesus. So, believer, understand this, that you are a saint of God. Calvin comments in this and says, No man, therefore, is a believer who is not also a saint. And on the other hand, no man is a saint who is not a believer. And so here's the understanding, is that Christ has made them saints by His grace. They have not made themselves saints. Now, there's a lot of false teaching out there that teaches that we gradually become saints or the church must ordain you to be a saint. Foreign to Scripture, you'll not find it anywhere. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. Christ has made you holy. You don't make yourself holy. You are His by His grace and His grace alone. He has changed your position. And so to be in Christ is to be a saint, which was what describes the whole of God's people. And as God's people, what characterizes them in this world? It is faith and living faithfully. Thus, Paul says of them, he calls them the faithful in Christ Jesus. The faithful in Christ Jesus. That term indicates someone who is full of faith, exercising faith, loyal to Christ. So the faithful then are believers here, which is a precious identification for them. And here's what you understand is that despite where they are in this pagan Roman city of Ephesus, they are faithful to the Lord. They are faithful to the Lord. And this is where we see the background to the Ephesians. I want you to see number two this morning because this ties it together, where they come from, who, what Paul has in mind, and, and it gives us some insight into these people in Ephesus. We consider Ephesians. We, we need to consider where they are and how they came to the gospel. So number two this morning, we see the background to the Ephesians. And I want you to see two things that the gospel did in Ephesus. The first thing I want you to note is that the gospel brought conversion in Ephesus. The gospel brought conversion in Ephesus. The gospel alone, friend, is what brings conversion to dead sinners. No matter where they are, no matter how dark of a place it is in which they abide, the gospel alone is the light of God that transforms the darkened heart. 
So where was Ephesus, and how significant was this city, especially to the spread of the gospel? Let me give you some uh, historical insight here. I promise I'll try not to bore you with this, but I want to just share this with you to give you some background. Ephesus was located at the mouth of the Castor River on the Aegean coast in the southwestern corner of present-day Turkey. So if you go look at a map today and look at Turkey, and you look at where that is on the coast, that's where Ephesus was. Your Bible map will probably have that for you. But roads from this city spread out in every direction along the coast and through the interior of the province. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Its population is estimated to have been around 250,000 during the early time of Christianity. So you can easily see how significant this city was. It was a major commercial port city and was renowned for its various activities and things that took place there. Some of the major public buildings discovered at the site of ancient Ephesus include the famous temple of Artemis or Diana, public squares, stadiums, gymnasiums, theaters. One significant theater built in the side of Mount Peon accommodated about 24,000 people. So this was a major hub, a major place And being this kind of a city, you can imagine that Paul and his missionary journeys is eventually going to come through Ephesus. He's going to come through here. So this brings us to consider where and how did the gospel enter Ephesus. I want you to go backwards in your Bible to the book of Acts. We'll come back and conclude in Ephesus. But I want us to see some background here in the missionary journeys of Paul and seeing how the gospel came to Ephesus and what took place in Ephesus with the gospel. As we look at the journeys of Paul, Paul stops there briefly on his second missionary journey, having with him Priscilla and Aquila. In Acts 18, in verse 19 through verse 21, we find, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So what do we find there? Paul was there for a brief time in that city. And while he was there, he reasoned with the Jews. That was his format. He went into a city. If there was a synagogue, he went there and reasoned with the Jews that Jesus is the Christ of the Old Testament, promised by God. So he's reasoned with the Jews. And they sought for him not to depart, but he felt he needed to go on. But he left Priscilla and Aquila there in the city. And then Paul told them, I'll return if God wills. So this first stop in Ephesus wasn't too long. But it would plant the seed of the gospel for great fruit to come. And with Priscilla and Aquila left in the city, they were still a gospel witness there in the city as well. But not only was Aquila and Priscilla a gospel witness, they encounter a man named Apollos. You read about Apollos through the scriptures. He's another faithful man of God who preached the gospel. You come down to verse 25 and we read that this man knew the Lord and he was strong in the scriptures and he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he's testifying in Ephesus concerning Jesus. The only thing he lacked here was 
proper baptism. He had known the baptism of John, but he needed to be taught more fully about the baptism of Christ. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they help Apollos here, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. So think of this for a moment. Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos no doubt had an impact on the gospel in Ephesus along with Paul and how he had already been there. But that brings us to where Paul's going to return to Ephesus. He's going to come back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey where we see this in Acts chapter 19. And this time, Paul is going to stay and labor in Ephesus for around three years. That's a long period of time. Pretty much longer than he stayed in most other places. Now look with me at Acts chapter 19 and verse 1 for a moment. The Bible says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found what? Found disciples. So there's, there's some disciples here in Ephesus. The gospel has been fruitful. There's been some disciples being made, no doubt, by the others who labored. And, and Paul's seed that he planted there. And, and so he found these disciples, that these disciples also needed uh, baptism in Christ's name. And so Paul does that. But then you come down to verse 8 through 10, and we see how Paul's ministry continues. Look at this with me. Acts 19, 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, just just look at what's happening for a moment. Here he is reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God here in the synagogue, right? And so while some received it, there's also those who rejected it. So in verse 9, what does Paul do? He took the disciples with him, those who are believers, those who are following the Lord, and he began reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus. So he's not in the synagogue anymore. He's in the hall of Tyrannus. The hall of Tyrannus was a lecture hall used for public teaching and and speeches. According to the Western text of Acts, Paul's activity here was from the 5th hour to the 10th, which was 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, if this textual variant reflects Paul's actual schedule there, which it may or may not, that indicates that Paul presented his message during the heat of the day when many people would refrain from their activities and would have time to listen and converse with him where it was shaded, where there was more uh, cool. So, so Paul, no doubt here, he has an audience in which he is preaching the gospel. He wasn't welcomed in the synagogue very long, but here he is in the hall of, of Tyrannus preaching the gospel, teaching uh, the disciples, helping them grow and to know of the kingdom of God. And with Ephesus being such a populated and well-traveled place, understand that this is providential by God. This is providential by God. It's strategic ministering in this place. Why? Well, look at verse 10. Look at what's becoming of this. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Notice it doesn't say all the residents of Ephesus. This was a traveling hub. So that those who were passing through, they would hear Paul. They'd go on with the gospel that they heard and take it somewhere else. 
You see, this is strategic, and God is providential over all these things. He's providential over how and when and where the gospel spreads throughout the earth. So understand that wherever God plants his church, it's for a reason. And we ought to take that to heart as Lee Creek. Lee Creek is here for a reason. God's providence has placed this church here for a reason, to be a light of the gospel in this area, in this community. In this state. So notice this. With this labor, the church in Ephesus was formed, and the gospel had brought conversion to many in that city. But that is not all the gospel brought. The gospel brought conversion. But not only that, letter B, notice the second aspect here in the background of Ephesians. The gospel brought conflict in Ephesus. It brought conflict. Now, why and how would the gospel bring conflict? To the city of Ephesus. Surely the gospel isn't confrontational, is it? Surely the gospel is just an easygoing message of God's love and everybody's good with God and you'll have great blessing and uh, do whatever you want with your life, right? Surely that's what the gospel is, right? No. The gospel confronts the wicked, idolatrous, sinful practices of the human heart. And like any big city, Ephesus had a lot of that. Ephesus was renowned for this. They were filled with false religion, pagan practices, and satanic influences. And the gospel directly rubs that wrong, rebukes it. So when we look back at Ephesus historically, we see how entrenched the city was in false religious practices. I want to I mention these to you. All right, I put one of them in your notes, but there's a few others. During the first century, Ephesus was home to various religious beliefs. People in Ephesus participated in the worship of Artemis, also known as Diana, same person, a goddess of fertility, magic, and astrology. The Greeks identified this goddess as Artemis, while the Romans identified it as Diana. So there you have the two names of the one false god. Excavated inscriptions uh, portray that Artemis was a savior, one who was able to answer prayer. In fact, the temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana, if you've probably heard of that, was one of the seven wonders of the world. Artemis was not the only deity worshipped in that city. There's other deities uh, by, by, by the Romans and others, one called Roma, Isis, Serapis, uh, just to name a few Evidence reveals that the citizens of Ephesus worshipped up to 50 different gods and goddesses. The people of Ephesus worshipped up to 50 different gods and goddesses. And beyond that, you have the worship of the imperial cult, the Romans, the Caesars. The imperial cult had religious and political dimensions for the people in Ephesus. The cult bestowed emperors with honors similar to those given to gods, such as festivals and games, temples, and statues. In fact, you'll find that the statue of the Roman emperor Trajan found in the ruins of Ephesus, his foot is on top of the world as if he is the god over the world. Beyond the imperial cult, you have Gnosticism, which was a religious movement that stressed a superior philosophy and was very much evident in that day and time. Gnosticism viewed knowledge as a gift of salvation from above, joining the knower and the deity. Then you have the practice of magic, was also popular in Ephesus. 
primarily among the poor and the uneducated. In, in Hellenistic thought of that day, magic was the belief in a spirit world that influenced virtually every aspect of life. So Ephesus was known as a place of demonic activity. Because of the popularity of magic in Ephesus, when you hear the phrase Ephesian writings, that was used to describe their documents that contained magic formulas and spells. There's more. I could go on. But do you get the picture how dark Ephesus is? How depraved, how wretched, how, 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 how entrenched they are in idolatry. And so beyond what we see historically, what do we see biblically that lines right up with what we find historically in Ephesus with the conflict? Now, continue to read with me in Acts 19. And notice verse 11 down through verse 20 for a moment. Look at, look at the wonderful work of God and the conflict going on. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and had diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those that had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now watch this. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic, arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now what do you see through this text? You see Christ manifesting his power through Paul. Casting out demons, light casting out darkness, healing infirmities and sickness. So Paul is manifesting Christ's power over these demonic spirits. And so this leads some Jewish exorcists who are not believers to, well, we're going to mimic Paul in Jesus' name, try the same thing. Well, we see what happened in verse 15 to 16, right? That evil spirit said, I know Jesus and I know Paul. Who are you guys? Who are you guys? They weren't, they weren't known of the Lord. They didn't, the, the demons didn't know them. They weren't concerned with them. And so the demons here, they overpower these men by this man, and, and they, they leave them pretty much embarrassed, fleeing. But with this narrative, with the demonic forces at work in Ephesus, this caused great fear among the people. And notice what happens in verse 18 and 19. Many believers brought those demonic books together and burned them in the sight of all. And the value of them was 50 pieces of silver, which is in that day and time a very large amount of money. Very large amount of money. What is this evidence to us? That the gospel is truly transforming their lives. They're ridding themselves of the old way and coming on to the new way that was despised. Despite the evil, strongholds in Ephesus, what do we see in verse 20? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Church, what does that teach us for today? 
What does that teach us for today? We look at our world, and what is it? It's dark, it's demonic, it's depraved. There's all sorts of things of that nature, right? Here's what it teaches us. The dark forces at work in our communities, our states, our nation, they are all subject to the power of the gospel. They're all subject to the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, this is what the gospel is meant to do and what it does. It invades darkness, exposing evil, and bringing supernatural change to people. Christian, I know that we live in a dark day, and we see dark things all around us, but let us not forget the power of the gospel. We are on the winning side. We're not on the losing side. The light overcomes darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome light. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Friend, don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. Don't feel like you have to hide with the gospel. Be bold with the gospel. Now notice also how this conflict continues. I'm trying to come through this. While the, Lord, while the word of God prevails over those who God ordains it to prevail over, we, sat, we see that it only provokes hatred in the midst of those depraved men who reject it. And this conflict intensifies going forward as the livelihood of those who depended on the temple of Diana or Artemis is threatened. Look at verse, Acts, look at verse 23 of Acts 19 through 27. About that time there arose no little disturbance. You know what that means? This is a big disturbance. Big one. Concerning what? The way. The way. What's the way? The way of Christ. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is the way of Christ that is causing this disturbance. In verse 24, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, or Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana, may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see what's at stake here? You see how the gospels brought conflict? Demetrius, this man stands up, and he's got a very wealthy, lucrative business of making uh, idols uh, in the form of the goddess Diana, or Artemis, or even in the form of the temple. And what's the rise of Christianity doing? It's decreasing the sales of this cult. That's one way you get attention to people, decrease their profit, and they get attention, they get mad, right? And so Christianity's the blame for this in their eyes. And so Demetrius says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And he accuses Paul in verse 26, this Paul has persuaded and turned away great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Boy, I, I, Mr. Demetrius needs to go read Isaiah, doesn't he? There is no such thing as a God made with hands or even conjured in the mind of men. As you read further through this sequence, I won't do it for time's sake. I'm trying to get through this. This provokes a riot in the city. 
in which some of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, are dragged into that theater before this multitude of people. And in that theater, there's all kinds of confusion about what's going on, and they just start shouting in verse 24, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, or great is Diana of the Ephesians. They're just shouting and shouting, and this riot was eventually calmed down by the town clerk who just wanted to see some societal order. He wasn't given a solution to it. So here you have this conflict that the gospel brought to this place. And Paul referenced it in 1 Corinthians 15.32, saying that he had fought with beasts in Ephesus. So it's great conflict and warfare of the gospel. Now, knowing the dark forces at work in Ephesus and what I've mentioned to you about Ephesus... Can you see why Paul says some of the things he says in this letter? How he emphasizes the exalted Lord Jesus over all principality and authority in this world. Not Trajan, not the emperor, not the goddess Diana, but the Lord Jesus. You notice how he mentions that we're in spiritual warfare with dark forces and we need to take up the whole armor of God in chapter 6. All of what Paul says here ties into what they were dealing with in Ephesus. And friend, this is true for us to recognize the authority of Christ over all power and that you and I as well are engaged in spiritual warfare with dark forces. We need to be prepared for that. This brings me to the last point here this morning. I'm going to be quick. Number three, the objective for the Ephesians. What's the objective here for Paul writing this letter? Well, I'll open with this and say we see firstly that Paul greets them with grace and peace. Paul wants for them grace and peace. That's the first thing he wants. This is a typical opening in a a letter that Paul would give, although this one's shorter than some others, but it's very heartfelt. He says in Ephesians 1 and verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This uh, greeting is actually a prayer. Paul's praying for them to have grace and peace from God. A greeting of grace shows us Paul's desire for God's goodness on them that only God can bestow. This greeting of peace, it's, that word for peace is similar to the Hebrew greeting of shalom. It suggested spiritual and physical well-being. So, so Paul, wants, Paul wants the best for this church. This shows us his heart for them. He has poured out his life to them for nearly three years because he truly loved the Lord's people. Before Paul left Ephesus for the last time, he reminded the elders of the church how he labored there, declared the whole counsel of God to them, warns them of wolves who will seek to devour the flock. And in verse, Acts chapter 20, verse 31, he says, Be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul had a genuine care and concern for this church. And may I say to you that that is the care and concern that every pastor has for the church. A pastor who wants to abuse the church and use the church is not a pastor. A pastor who loves the church and wants only their spiritual well-being and fruitfulness unto God is what the Bible describes. Paul's compassion for this church was real. He wanted dearly for them to know the depth of the gospel of Christ and how that gospel changes their lives in every capacity. And this is what I want nothing more than for the people of Lee Creek to know the depths of the gospel and how the gospel permeates every facet of your life. The gospel isn't something you do on Sunday. It is something that is part of your life. 
something ingrained in you because Christ has changed you. Letter B this morning. And lastly, not only do we see Paul greets them with grace and peace, Paul's goal in this letter is doctrinal and practical. It is doctrinal and practical. Now, this letter is different from other letters, as we've mentioned earlier. It's not addressing specific church trouble. It's not addressing sins in the church or people in the church, but rather it is a general exhortation to the church concerning the eternal gospel of Christ and the Christian life. And as you read Ephesians, you can easily break it down into two categories, the doctrinal and the practical. The first three chapters are theological, emphasizing New Testament doctrine, whereas the last three chapters are practical and focus on Christian behavior. MacArthur comments and says, Perhaps above all, this is a letter of encouragement and admonition written to remind believers of their immeasurable blessings in Jesus Christ and not only to be thankful for those blessings, but also live in a manner worthy of them. And I believe this. For us as Christians to truly live faithful as we ought, we need to know the gospel intimately. Appeals to faithfulness and obedience always flow out of a gospel exposition. And this is what Paul does. In the first three chapters, to give you an overview, he expounds the glorious gospel afresh, giving them a deep and eternal vantage point of what Christ has done. It reveals our predestined salvation, the exaltation of Christ, the grace of God in conversion, and the union of God's people as one people of God. You come to the last three chapters and it reveals the practical, and it shows us how these truths influence the Christian life in all areas, including our personal living, our family relationships, our social responsibilities, and the spiritual warfare we are engaged in. And I'll close with this very important point. Because this is how Paul closes the letter of Ephesians. At the end of Ephesians, you're going to find him right. And urge them to love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And may I say that this is the objective of Ephesians. That the letter of Ephesians should do this chiefly. It should deepen your love for Jesus. The sad thing is, is after a few short years, the Ephesian church, they got a second letter, but not from Paul, from the Lord himself. If you go read Revelation 2 and verse 1 through 7, Jesus commends them for some things. They were doing well. But then he tells them in verse 4, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at the first. You know what happened in Ephesus? They had a cold orthodoxy. A cold orthodoxy. And this is a warning for all of us. It does not matter how doctrinally right you are if you are cold in your heart. If you do not genuinely and deeply love Jesus, love his church, and love sinners who need him. We must have a heartfelt love, for that is the end goal. So Ephesians is a rich study of the eternal gospel and its effect on God's people. And it's my prayer as we come through this text that it would deepen your love for Jesus. And for the deepened love for Jesus, that you would live it out in your Christian life just as his word prescribes.